Well, it's, uh, it's good to be here and uh, thank you for the invitation. It's, uh, it sort of came about as a Chinese New Year uh, conversation really with Sui Teng, discovering that you were going to have a sermon series on Geronomy, uh, which sort of amazes me that people do that, but it's good. And, uh, and, and then thinking it sort of evolved in a sense to uh, me being here today and therefore uh, I was free to give some talks. And so uh, we're really pitching this, I think, at uh, the sort of small group leaders and others from this church, but I know it's uh, opened out to other churches, so uh, I'm, I have no idea where you're all from, uh, whether you're from here or other, elsewhere, that's all right. But uh, the aim of it, I guess, is to give some introductory sorts of uh, ideas about Deuteronomy uh, for the purpose particularly of uh, this church, as it, I think after Easter uh, has a sermon series on Deuteronomy. So uh, that's what we're doing. So I'm going to do four sessions. One, a general introduction. Then uh, after the second session before lunch is uh, to look at chapters one to three uh, and to think about, uh, sort of to expound them to a degree, but um, uh, to think about how they lay uh, foundations that help us understand where Deuteronomy is driving at. Uh, Then after lunch, a session on how to read Old Testament law So, uh, that's a bit broader than Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy, the bulk of it is law, so uh, particularly with that focus. And then the last session is uh, sort of tie some theological threads together and talk about the triumph of grace in Deuteronomy. So, they're the the four sessions that we're dealing with. Uh, My aim is to have time uh, towards the end of each uh, for questions and answer and discussion and and there'll be a sort of short break between uh, roughly at 11 o'clock and a short break at, what would it be, two o'clock in the middle of the afternoon, two hours. So that's to give you a guideline of what we're doing. Uh, Let's pray as we begin. God, our Heavenly Father, you've caused all Holy Scripture to be written to make us wise for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We thank you for speaking these words to your people through Moses and now to us. And we pray that you will uh, teach us, uh, correct us and rebuke us, train us in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. William Tyndale was uh, instrumental in writing, uh, or translating rather, the, much of the Bible into English. Uh, the first major attempt, I guess, Wycliffe a bit before him had done some, Uh, uh, Tyndale paid for that job with his life, uh, executed for, uh, in 1526 I think, for uh, translating much of the Bible into English. Uh, But he wrote about Deuteronomy uh, and the quote I put on the handout, uh, a book worthy to be read in day and night and never to be out of hands, take note of that, never to be out of hands, for it is the most excellent of all the books of Moses. It is easy also, I'm not sure that everybody agrees with that, Uh, having done a PhD on it, I still love the book, uh, but it's not always easy, Uh, and light and a very pure gospel that is to it, a preaching of faith and love, deducing the love to God out of faith and the love of a man's neighbour out of the love of God. Uh, Let me say, I think that that's a very profound quote. Uh, from a man who was uh, reputedly a ploughman, uh, uh, an uneducated man from Gloucestershire, which is actually where I did my PhD, 
and um, a great hero of the faith. And I think he's spot on about Deuteronomy. And so often we uh, have a view where the Old Testament is sort of uh, second rate, sub-Christian, pre-Christian, law, not gospel. Uh, But actually, certainly in Deuteronomy, and I think all through the Old Testament, uh, we find books of the Bible that are, in fact, the gospel, uh, as indeed John's John's gospel tells us that Jesus said. Uh, Not so much about Deuteronomy as uh, Genesis in that case. Uh, the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. So that's the sort of point of view I come from. And to introduce the book, I thought it was good to start with the very first paragraph, which is uh, not particularly unusual. But the first paragraph of Deuteronomy actually tells us a lot uh, about this book. Uh, Let me uh, read verses uh, 1 to 5 for us from chapter 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan. In the wilderness, on the plain opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. By the way of Mount Seir, it takes 11 days to reach Kadesh Barnea from Horeb. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the Israelites just as the Lord had commanded him to speak to them. This was after he had defeated King Sihon of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and King Og of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law as follows. In essence, that opening paragraph uh, gives us all the introductory things that we need to know about the book of Deuteronomy. It tells us who, who uh, this book comes from, humanly speaking, from Moses. In fact, verses 1 and 3 and 5 all say that Moses spoke the words of this book. Uh, Many of our modern translations don't do this anymore, but I think the old RSV did this. It puts all of Moses' words in uh, in, um, uh, quotation marks. Uh, If you were to go through the book of Deuteronomy and underline or highlight the words that Moses actually speaks... Uh, there would be the vast bulk of the book. Uh, This opening paragraph, he doesn't speak. It's an introduction. There's a little bit at the end of chapter 4 and a little bit elsewhere in a couple of other chapters and then only at the end, some bits where Moses doesn't speak, chapters 31 and 34 where he dies. But virtually everything else, almost without exception, are the words that Moses speaks to Israel. So Moses is the human person who brings these words to the people of God. Uh, as you'll see reading through the book, uh, we're very, it's very clear that the words actually come from God to Moses to Israel. Uh, but some of it is Moses preaching, and, and I'll say more about that in a minute, uh, to Israel about the times past and what lies in the future. So Moses is the key character. It's he who speaks And indeed, we're told in chapter 31, writes down the words of this law. Uh, I take it that that implies he writes down chapters 1 to 30, at least. Uh, There are some who would say that Moses writes down the whole book, including the last chapter, which is where he dies. After all, he is a prophet. But I don't think we need to hold necessarily to that view. Tradition has it, of course, that Moses uh, wrote down the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books 
uh, Genesis through to Deuteronomy. But there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that he wrote those books. There is, for, though, for Deuteronomy. And, and you can make up your own mind whether he wrote the other books down uh, as well. But that's certainly a long-standing conservative tradition uh, in Christian thinking. To whom? Moses speaks to all Israel. Uh, that's a, an expression that's used a number of times in the early chapters of the Bible. All Israel, to demonstrate and remind their unity, belonging together, even though it's clear there are 12 tribes who all end up in different uh, parts of the land. Uh, all Israel is the group that uh, Moses is speaking to. Where does he speak these words? Uh, maybe I will actually try and draw a little map here. I'm not very good at uh, uh, sort of such multimedia. But um, uh, here is the land of Israel. Uh, let me tell you what it is because um, <laughs> I, I, I'm discovering in Malaysia that people don't actually look at maps much. It's hard to actually get a map of Kuala Lumpur and having got one, I'm not actually sure that it's of much use. Um, <laughs> I was saying to Andrew before that Kuala Lumpur is the most bewildering place to, to get around and I just completely lose my north, south, east, west bearings and I don't drive there so uh, it's doubly hard I think. But um, So this is, this is Israel, not Kuala Lumpur. This is, out here is the Mediterranean Sea and down here is Egypt and uh, this, this here is the Red Sea, although I'm using black and uh, these actually join up down here. And uh, this is the Sinai Peninsula and this little sort of squiggle is not sort of part of your anatomy. Uh, This is the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea with the Jordan River in between. Now, if that totally bamboozles you, don't worry. Some people like maps and some don't. Um, It's worth noting where this happens. That's actually quite important. Uh, Beyond the Jordan is the expression in verse 5. Beyond, from the point of view of being here, Uh, There was actually some Jewish uh, controversy about this in a way in uh, medieval times because if Moses wrote it, why why do we end up with an expression in the book beyond the Jordan when he's writing it from the side of the Jordan here where he is? Uh, The orientation, of course, is in the land uh, and maybe the opening paragraph doesn't come from Moses himself. After all, Moses is in third person there. Beyond the Jordan is on this side and this is the promised land side. That's the significance of it. He's outside the land, beyond the Jordan River, which is the boundary, or at least this part of the boundary, of the promised land. And we're told a number of place names, many of which we don't need to worry about. He's in the plains of Moab, which is uh, this sort of area uh, around here. Uh, The Jordan Valley is uh, part of the great African Rift Valley, It's uh, actually the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea. Uh, It's actually getting lower because the water level's dropping at a rapid rate. And uh, so you're 400 metres below sea level here, uh, the lowest point on earth. And and this this huge rift valley sort of actually goes all the way down to Mozambique, I think, uh, in Africa. And this is the upper end of it up into Syria. What you end up with is a, a deep valley with high... Uh, mountains or hills or plains on either side and they're in what is modern day Jordan, uh, the high plains of Moab. Uh, Mount Nebo is part of that plain which is where uh, Moses dies in chapter 34. What's the significance of this? Uh, They're not in the land and it's, it's 
fundamental to get that perspective that all through the book, Moses is preaching to all of Israel who are outside the land, the promised land. And that's one of the guiding themes that I'll come to uh, in a few minutes' time. It's probably worth at this point just reminding you of the history and we'll we'll come back to this later this morning. Uh, The people have been in Egypt uh, eventually under oppression and slavery after 400 years of being there. Uh, They went there in the time of Joseph and Jacob. But through all the plagues and miracles which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, under the leadership of Moses, they come out, they cross the Red Sea, presumably somewhere up here. They come down into the Sinai Peninsula and those, some scholars argue, for different places for Mount Sinai, the traditional places sort of there. Uh, That's as good as any, I I would say. And uh, there they spend from Exodus 18 all the way through to Numbers chapter 10. So, half of Exodus, all of Leviticus and a third or so of Numbers, uh, the people are at Mount Sinai where they hear God's laws given, uh, they build a tabernacle, they hear all the holiness laws of Leviticus, there is a census taken and then finally in Numbers 10 they leave. And, and this leads us then to not where does this happen but when does this happen and, and the opening paragraph of Deuteronomy uh, gives us two times It says, firstly, that it takes 11 days to get from Sinai up to Kadesh. So, roughly here, Kadesh Barnea is on the southern border of the promised land of of Israel. And uh, 11 days. But we're told, I think it's verse 3, 2 or 3, in the 40th year this all occurs. The 40th year of what? The 40th year of leaving Egypt. So it takes them a few weeks to get to Sinai. They're there for the best part of a year. It's only 11 days to get to the border, but now we're in the 40th year. So there's a sort of allusion there to their past history. Right at the beginning of a book that is in many ways very positive, it it sounds this sort of, uh uh-oh, 40th year, a reminder of failure. Why 40 years? Well, as I'm sure you know, in the Numbers 13, 14, they get to Kadesh and the people are afraid of going into the land. And so they send spies into the land and after that spies incident, they decide not to conquer the land and they remain in the end uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. We'll come back to that in Deuteronomy 1 to 3 in the second talk. But what this is telling us is who spoke to whom where and when. The 40th year is actually sounding a negative sort of jarring note, a discordant note if you like, in the opening paragraph of the book. It's reminding us of failure, something that we'll be seeing in bigger detail uh, shortly. The the brief story uh, is that they end up after nearly 40 years finally moving up through here uh, up to this this land where they are, still beyond the Jordan, outside the land, but at the border. That's uh, significant too. They're they're overlooking the land. Uh, You see that graphically in chapter 34 when Moses dies. He's taken on this plains of Moab up uh, to the top of Mount Nebo where he sees and surveys the whole of the land uh, which must have been good because I've been there a few times and it's always very hazy. You can't see very much when I've been there but Uh, Maybe then it was a clear day. 
and uh, he surveys the whole of the land and then dies outside the land. So the whole of Israel is poised, looking over the Jordan into the promised land as this book uh, is spoken by Moses uh, to Israel. What is uh, this book? Uh, it's it's uh, fundamentally spoken uh, words. Um, we've got it written. It was written down after being spoken. And I'll say a bit more about its style in a minute, but keep that in mind that though many of the books of the Bible are written uh, originally, uh, many of them are spoken originally. And so it's actually good to try and get into the mindset of being a congregational member hearing Deuteronomy being preached rather than thinking of it as like a letter to a church. It's a sermon actually. And, uh, and that leads me into the why question in this introduction. Why this book of Deuteronomy? What's going on is, is not a speech as in a farewell speech as some commentators have described it. It's a sermon. Uh, Moses expounds in verse 5. And the word to expound is, is like preach in a way. Uh, we might say to engrave or inculcate uh, God's word into the hearts, minds and lives of Israel. So what's going on in this book is preaching, uh, in effect. Why is Moses preaching? He's preaching because of the past and because of the future. He's preaching because the people in front of him are sinful people. The history of Israel is sinful, especially the last 40 years. But ahead of them is a huge task of conquest of the promised land, to cross over the Jordan River and to conquer the land that lies in front of them. And in order to draw Israel into that task for the future, uh, Moses preaches. And we're going to see a good illustration of that in the second talk uh, this morning. So I'm just trying to orient you to the book. And this opening paragraph tells us then who, to whom, where, when, what and why, in effect. The basic questions. Why is this book important? Apart from the fact that it's one of 66 in the Bible. I actually believe that Deuteronomy is a, a pivotal book and uh, there are some books in the Bible that studying them will actually help us to understand the whole range or a wider range of the Bible. And Deuteronomy is one of those books. Deuteronomy draws together the key themes and threads of the first four books of the Old Testament. Uh, with them, it makes up what's called the Pentateuch or in Jewish language, the Torah, the the law, but not law as we think of law being do this and don't do this, but law as in way of life. The first five books of the Old Testament are foundational uh, in the Bible, foundational in the Old Testament and especially so for Israelite and later Jewish uh, believers and thinkers. Uh, that is that uh, the rest of the, the Old Testament is built on the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy is like the the crowning piece of the Pentateuch. So the promises of God to Abram, they are key threads through Deuteronomy. Uh, the laws of God to Israel are key threads through Deuteronomy. It sort of draws the promises and the laws and the purposes of God, uh, summarising them in a sense in this book. So if you understand Deuteronomy, you'll have a fairly good understanding of Genesis through to Numbers. 
Uh, not that you'll get necessarily all the storyline. There are allusions to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, there are strong uh, references back to uh, the Exodus and to Sinai, the giving of the law and to Israel's failure at different points in the 40 years. So the major planks, if you like, of the narrative are there and the major purposes of the law are all there in Deuteronomy. So studying Deuteronomy is going to give you a fairly good understanding, in a sense, of key themes of four other books that precede it. But more than that, Deuteronomy lays a foundation for reading the history that follows. Some scholars call the books that follow, Joshua through to two kings, as we would call them, uh, the Deuteronomistic history. Now, don't worry about such a long word. Basically, it's the history told from the perspective of Deuteronomy. And uh, whilst I'm not, I don't go down the path of some of the theories of, of the authorship of those history books, etc., there is a real sense in which those history books do come at history from the angle of Deuteronomy. And uh, the, the key ideas, language, emphases in Deuteronomy we find as being a grid or a filter or a framework for understanding the history books that follow. For example, uh, there is a law about the king in Deuteronomy 17 and if you read it, you cannot help but think Solomon. And it gives us then a, a framework for assessing Solomon's reign as king especially his failures to do with wealth, women and weapons uh, in 1 Kings 1 to 11. So, Deuteronomy does that many times. Uh, in the book of Joshua, the people make a covenant with the Gibeonites and it looks to be a fairly nice and peaceful thing to do and uh, many would say, you know, that's, that's the right sort of approach rather than sort of kill them all off. But in fact, uh, when we read of that narrative, we know that it's a bad thing to do because of the laws of Deuteronomy that say don't make treaties with the people in the land. In fact, the laws in Deuteronomy provide then a, a guideline for reading the narrative of the history that comes. Uh, when we uh, read narrative, that is uh, history, uh, sometimes it doesn't make uh, overt... Uh, moral assessment. It tells us what happened. It leaves sometimes for us to decide is what happened what should have happened or not. So when they make a treaty with the Gibeonites is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, now in the end in the narrative it's clear that it's bad but not always is that the case. With Solomon, yeah we sort of know that some are good and some are bad but the laws are what tell us in a sense, help us to make a, a, a judgment on those things. So, many of the things that happen in the history that follows, the kings and the nation, we know whether it's good or bad because of the laws in Deuteronomy. Oh yes, there's reference back to Exodus and Leviticus too. They're not excluded. But it does seem to be some emphasis on the laws of Deuteronomy. One law in particular that is distinctive in Deuteronomy uh, in chapter 12, their worship is to be, especially their sacrificial worship, is to be centralised into one place. The place is not named in Deuteronomy 12 and it's the place that Yahweh, uh, your God, will choose to make his name dwell there. Uh, 
ultimately that place is clearly Jerusalem where the tabernacle comes in David's reign and the temple is built then by Solomon on that site. Uh, But that's about 400 years later. Uh, My dating would say that the book of Deuteronomy is being preached at around about 1400 BC and uh, just before the conquest. And David begins his reign in about 1000 and the temple's built about 950. Uh, But in the years before David, uh, we're not actually quite sure exactly what is this central place. Uh, The one that does stand out is a place called Shiloh. Uh, That's where... Samuel is taken as a boy and Jeremiah 7, I think it is, talks of Shiloh being the place that God had chosen to make his name dwell in earlier days. Probably that place is where the Ark of the Covenant and therefore the tabernacle go uh, and that may have been a few places before it ends up in Jerusalem. Now, my point of mentioning this is that Deuteronomy's law in chapter 12 centralises worship. It had already been central in the wilderness, but that's easy because all the people are in one group. But once they spread out into the land, the point of Deuteronomy 12 is there is one place for sacrifice where God chooses and it is not an idolatrous place. It is not a Canaanite place of worship. You cannot worship in their places. You cannot worship on hills and under leafy trees, which is where they worship. It is in a place that God chooses And that emphasis is distinctive in Deuteronomy. It's not there in Exodus and Leviticus. When you come to the books of Kings and the assessment of the kings is given, they're almost all bad. The northern kings are all bad and only eight of the southern kings are in any way good, four in particular, but all of them fail at some point, the best of them being Josiah and Hezekiah. And the key assessment is about their place of worship. Do they get rid of the idolatrous places or not? That's a Deuteronomic emphasis. So what I'm saying is, to understand the narrative of Joshua through to two kings, the book of Deuteronomy is foundational. It it provides us with the, the filter or the framework for understanding the failures or the successes, the assessments of Israel and the kings. So Deuteronomy is helpful for us to understand the first four books of the Old Testament and it's foundational for understanding the books that followed, Joshua through to the end of two kings in particular uh, in the history. But Deuteronomy actually provides more help for us. Uh, it's, uh, It's useful, indeed I think important, for understanding much of the prophets. Uh, In particular, the language of Jeremiah and Hosea seems to have resonance with the language of uh, Deuteronomy. And um, uh, in in things like uh, Jeremiah uses language of circumcision, which is in Deuteronomy, language of love, which is in Deuteronomy, is in Hosea and Jeremiah. Uh, Those sorts of ideas are few. So there's particular connections, it seems. Uh, I I ought to, in passing, and, and... If this confuses you, please ignore the comment. But for those who've read a bit of theology and if you're preparing Bible studies and are reading a bit and you might come across these ideas, there are many who would say that Deuteronomy is actually written in the time of Jeremiah. Certainly not my view. Um, But uh, because there are connections between um, King Josiah and the reforms that he does and Jeremiah's prophecy and themes in Deuteronomy, 
Uh, and uh, my, my view is uh, that, and I don't think mine's a particularly unusual one, but um, uh, is basically Deuteronomy was written by Moses. And in the time of Josiah, 640s, 620s BC, under the influence of Jeremiah the prophet, uh, actually the book of Deuteronomy at least is found again and uh, that leads to further reform in the time of Josiah. So I'm just saying that by way of, if you pick up a book and you read it and you think, oh, I thought Deuteronomy was from Moses and you find somebody saying otherwise, that's a bit of a debate in, uh, in Old Testament uh, scholars and, uh, and not one that I would accept, that late dating of uh, Deuteronomy. Having said that though, Jeremiah clearly knows Deuteronomy and Josiah's reforms of the temple and worship are clearly instigated both by Jeremiah and by the finding of Deuteronomy again. Uh, you can read about that in the later chapters of Two Kings uh, for Josiah's reforms. So there is, there is some connection with prophets. More generally though, uh, I, it seems to me that two chapters in particular in Deuteronomy are crucial for understanding both the history and the prophets that come. Those chapters are 27 and 28 and they are chapters that deal with what is called blessings and curses. Uh, The simple thing is if you obey, these are the blessings that will follow and if you disobey, these are the curses that will follow. The blessings and curses are largely to do with uh, agricultural and political prosperity and safety. That is, if you are blessed then you will be abundant in your crops, your animals and children and prosperous and you'll be safe, you'll be in the land. On the other hand, the curses will mean a a lack of uh, crops and animals and children and uh, the land will become like a drought and a famine and uh, escalating the ideas of curses, the next sort of steps will be you'll lose land, you'll lose battles against enemies and ultimately you'll actually lose the land and be taken into exile. Now you can read all of that in Deuteronomy 27, especially 28. It seems to me that the prophets in general uh, rely a lot on those two chapters. Uh, Let me illustrate In Amos chapter 4, Amos the prophet uh, says, uh, quoting God to Israel, I sent you a plague, I sent you a famine, I sent you a drought, it's a whole sequence of things, yet you did not turn to me. Now the language of those things comes out of Deuteronomy 28 and also a parallel in Leviticus uh, 26. And the idea of yet you did not turn to me is also from Deuteronomy. That is, these curses are meant to lead to people turning, or that is, repenting, back to God. They fail to understand and know Deuteronomy 28, for example. So Amos is actually preaching in Amos 4, saying, you guys should know Deuteronomy 28. You should understand that this locust plague, or this famine, this drought that we've gone through, is is other curses of the covenant. See, a way of understanding the prophets of the Old Testament is to say they are really, uh, as somebody else has written, covenant enforcement agents. That sounds a bit like the sort of secret police, I think. But um, what they are doing is basically trying to enforce the covenant 
on the people of Israel. So they're not making up new things really. They're actually going back to those curses and blessings of Deuteronomy 28 in particular. So that's helpful for us to see that Deuteronomy is foundational also for the prophets. And uh, that in particular is a dilemma in the time of the exile. So again in Jeremiah, Ezekiel to a degree, uh, Lamentations, as they seek to understand why are we in exile, why are we in a foreign land, what's happened here, and blaming their parents or blaming somebody else. And so it's actually from Deuteronomy 28 that you get the threat of curses that lead to exile that helps provide the interpretation that the prophets and Lamentations and others give in the time of the exile as well. So, what I'm trying to help you see is some connections in Deuteronomy and see how significant this book is. Uh, there are some who say there's got strong connections with the wisdom literature. I, there are some. Uh, it's not particularly strong, I think. The other thing about Deuteronomy is that it's the fourth most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Uh, I think behind Genesis and uh, Psalms and Isaiah. And uh, Deuteronomy is the next Uh, In something like 17 out of the 27 books of the New Testament, there are quotes or allusions or hints of Deuteronomy. Uh, You might try and think, well, where does Deuteronomy come in the New Testament? Uh, I sometimes ask my classes this and they're all racking their brains saying, oh, but uh, uh, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength, uh, that's out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does Jesus refer to in the wilderness temptations in Luke 4 and Matthew 4? But three quotes, all from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, including man does not live by bread alone. In Romans 10, Paul quotes a couple of times really from Deuteronomy, the passage in Romans 10 where he says about the gospel, it's not too hard for you to go up to heaven and down to the earth and into the sea and so on, comes out of Deuteronomy 30. A number of the laws, the debate about divorce for example and Other laws are referred to in the New Testament from Deuteronomy. And there's several other quotes in the Sermon on Acts 17. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 is quoted, etc., etc. So, uh, I've I've joked to New Testament colleagues at times that I I think Paul in Romans is just a plagiarist, really. Uh, His theology is Deuteronomy theology, uh, in in a way. And and to be honest, there are are several connections. I, I mean, it's overstating it, of course. But uh, there are strong connections and I think, a bit like the Tyndale uh, comment at the beginning there, that uh, in in understanding Deuteronomy, we'll actually understand a wide selection of the Bible and its theology. So this is actually a pivotal book to understand. What are its contents? Better move on here. Um, uh, Hopefully you can see that there's some passion after 30 years of reading this book. (laughs) And that even doing a PhD doesn't sort of exhaust your interest in it either. Um, the contents of the book. Um, it's a bit of a mix in a way. Um, I want to leave the map up because I'll, I'll come back to it later. But, um, so I, I, won't, I won't write up anything on this. The contents of the book. There's an opening section of past history, much of which we're going to look at in the next talk. Chapter 5 is where we get the Ten Commandments which also, of course, are quoted in the Prophets and the New Testament, and, uh, and, and some basic laws about loving God in chapters 5 through to 11. Uh, that's where we get love God with all your heart, soul and strength in chapter 6. Um, laws about loving God, serving God, 
uh, so on in chapter 10. General sorts of things about responding to God. Chapter 12 is where we get that chapter I've referred to about a central place of worship. And following on from that come other laws to do with worship and tithes and prophecy and then leaders and feasts and and all these sorts of things. And and all these laws go through to chapter 26. Uh, In the latter part you get laws of sexual behaviour, laws of property and theft and all those sorts of things. From chapter 26... Uh, then it, it rounds off that section on laws and that's when we get in 27 and 28 what I've referred to, the blessings and the curses. What happens if you keep all this? What happens if you don't keep all this? Um, 29 and 30 is like the conclusion of the sermon. It's uh, what I would say is the rhetorical high point of the sermon. So having relayed all of these things to the people of Israel, Moses then sort of draws it all together and says, come on you guys, in effect, choose life, uh, is, is I think the sort of climax of chapters 1 to 30 towards the end of chapter 30. And then in 31 to 34, we get what in some senses are a bit like appendices. I don't mean to say they're unimportant or trivial, but the preaching is really over. Chapter 31 is a transition of Moses to Joshua's leadership and the commissioning of Joshua, the writing down of the law, etc. 32 is a song that Moses writes and, uh, and then presumably sings, although we've, we have got the words and not the music for it. And, uh, and it's a song that, in a sense, uh, warns and testifies about uh, where Israel's future will lie. It's a negative uh, expectation. In 33, he then blesses the 12 tribes in a, in a way that's very analogous to uh, Jacob's blessing of his 12 sons in Genesis 49. And then Moses dies in chapter 34. It's worth keeping in mind here that the laws in 12 to 26, though there are some distinctives, we are dealing here with uh, what we could say is a recapitulation of the laws of Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, There are some distinctives and new things there, uh, but largely they're things that are coming out of Exodus and Leviticus. The name Deuteronomy literally means second law, deuteros nomos. That comes from uh, a bad translation, in effect, of uh, a command about the king in chapter 17, where he is to write down a copy of this law. And uh, what we get in Deuteronomy is not really second law as in uh, something new or different. It's really repeated law. And uh, Moses is actually at pains to stress that, that what he's preaching is not new, but actually a repeat uh, from the laws of Exodus and Leviticus. But the big difference is this. In Exodus and Leviticus, the, the feel of the law is this is what God says we should do and not do. In Deuteronomy, the feel of the law is is not this is what it is, but rather, do it. The difference is, Deuteronomy is preaching the law. Now, there's a lot of overlap in that, because in preaching there must be teaching about what the law is. But if you were to make a distinction between them, Deuteronomy is exhortation. It's preaching God's law to the people, not just saying what it is, 
but with the emphasis on do it, keep it, obey it, serve it, uh, walk in God's ways, those sorts of things. Now, that quick overview of the contents uh, leads then to what I've put as point four, the covenantal structure. I want to emphasise this for two reasons. The first reason is that the pattern of structure in the book matches, in broad terms, the structure of some ancient treaties of the ancient world. And I've given you the six main categories there in point four. You could match that, more or less, in Deuteronomy. We've looked at the preamble already, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. It's sort of like an opening brief introduction. Historical prologue we're going to deal with after a brief break in a minute. Chapters 1 to 3, more or less. And that, in a sense, tells the history leading up to the book. In an ancient treaty, for example, the ancient Hittites, about the same time as uh, Moses, uh, there are a couple of treaties of theirs that have been found in uh, what is northern Syria, I think, today. And uh, they follow this sort of pattern. Uh, A king has conquered another king or nation conquered a nation and it relays a bit of the history about what's what's ended up and then it says, this is what you guys have got to do, the guys who have conquered. So that's uh, some general laws, point three, and specific laws, section four. In those ancient treaties, there would be witnesses and usually the witnesses between a king and a king or a country and a country would be divine witnesses. So they call the gods to be witnesses. Well, how do you do that in this book of Deuteronomy where we only have one God and God, in fact, is part of the the treaty. That is, God and Israel is the treaty in Deuteronomy. So heaven and earth are called as witnesses in chapters 4 and 30, uh, meaning everything, really. Heaven and earth is a sort of Hebrew idiom. When you put two opposites together, uh, it often means everything in between. So, everything is called to witness to the treaty relationship or covenant relationship between God and Israel. And then sanctions means the blessings and curses which are in 28 and 20, uh, 27 and 28 that I've already talked about. So, more or less, the same pattern is found in Deuteronomy. There's a few things that don't quite match. Chapter 4 doesn't quite fit. Chapters 29 and 30 don't quite fit. I think that's because Deuteronomy is preaching Uh, not simply a document of a covenant. So it it sort of bends the the structure a little bit uh, into the form of preaching, 29 and 30 being a a very clearly exhortation, as is chapter 4 as well. The point of mentioning it is, uh, it helps us see the book as a whole. Until 100 years ago, many scholars sort of saw it as a bit of narrative and a bit of law and a bit of this and that and the other, When these treaties were found, and there's some that are later than Deuteronomy from the Assyrian time, but they follow, and their patterns are a little bit different from each other. Deuteronomy doesn't totally match either the early or late treaties. But it helps us see that there is this sort of treaty or better covenantal structure to the book. But it's not, the, the big difference is a theological difference more than a structural one. The big difference is that in those treaties of the Hittites or the Assyrians or whoever, uh, they've conquered another nation and therefore they are forcing subjugation on the conquered nation and people. But what we get in Deuteronomy, of course, which is a covenantal treaty between God and Israel, 
is far from force, far from conquering, but rather a covenantal relationship established by grace, not force. And that the law that is there is, a, is an expression of response to grace and response to gift, in effect. So, it's a theologically a big difference from those ancient treaties. So, the, the ancient treaties provide a helpful way of seeing the unity of Deuteronomy in a structure, but they also point out the difference. And that's actually what happens often in the, the Bible. We see similarities with ancient documents, but in the differences, we actually see some theological distinctives glowing. And that's what we see here. What is so strikingly different is that this is a relationship established by grace, by God. It's not only Deuteronomy that says that, of course. Even the Ten Commandments are like a little covenantal structure. I am the God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods but me. That is, the whole law, the stipulations are not forced on Israel, but are actually to be a willing response to what God has already done. My point of emphasising this is to make sure that when you are, if you're a Bible study leader here teaching your group uh, through Deuteronomy, is to make sure that you don't teach the laws legalistically or as though this is a force. That is a danger you see of, of Bible study or even sermon series and so on is that the grace bit might be evident if you read the book in one section but if you go through it step by step over a period of time you can forget, you know, if you like, the grace foundation at the beginning. So make sure that when you come to the legal section, to the Ten Commandments and to all the bits that follow, keep remembering the framework that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out of slavery. Exodus 18 and 19 has the same sort of idea that there is already a relationship in Exodus 19. You are my chosen people, a covenantal people, special royal priesthood, etc. Then come the Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws. So make sure you keep that, that, that structure in mind when you're teaching. Because I know even when you teach, say, the letter to the Romans as a Bible study or sermon, you've got all the gospel for 11 chapters. Therefore, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice and Various injunctions and laws and commands come in chapters 12 to 15 of Romans. As a preacher, I have to keep tying that back to the earlier sermons, otherwise you end up preaching it legalistically and uh, forget the, the grace. And the same in Deuteronomy because so many chapters are law. So whilst we can teach the law and what it means and how to apply it today, which I'll talk about after lunch, uh, we must keep that grace gospel framework clear and it is clear in Deuteronomy uh, but it's not clear in every verse or every law uh, so see it in the bigger picture. Um, let me uh, briefly say something about rhetorical style in Deuteronomy. Uh, remember this is a preaching book. Uh, Moses has preached these words, they've been written down uh, and, and, it, and it exhibits that sort of exhortation style there are various devices that are used. There's little bits of repetition. Uh, lots of language actually keeps coming up. Uh, I think that's rhetorically powerful, actually. Uh, so, this is the land that the Lord your God will give you. This is the land that the Lord your God has promised to give you. Those expressions come dozens of times in Deuteronomy. Uh, don't see them as being 
boring repetition, see it as being rhetorically engaging to entice and encourage the people to keep remembering God's giving this land. He's promised this land. This is not a daunting task for us because God's promise undergirds it. That's the sort of rhetoric that's going on in the book. Uh, And I'm using rhetoric in its right sense, in a positive way. Sometimes we think rhetoric is sort of like uh, a bad thing. The word rhetoric is often a derogatory term, but but actually it's right uh, as preachers to have, uh, and Moses does it here, right rhetoric of persuasion. And that's what's going on in this book. The other interesting thing... um, Maybe I'll touch on it after the break, but simply to say uh, there's a temptation to think our parents failed in the wilderness. We are the children of those now because Moses is dealing with a second generation out of Egypt. Blame the parents. We're okay. Now, every child is like that um, uh, in every generation, in every country, I think. Rhetorically, though, what Deuteronomy says is, and you imagine now you are the children of those who came out of Exodus. Some of you might have been children at the Exodus and others of you were born in the wilderness. And Moses is preaching to you. And what he says in Deuteronomy, which we'll see in a minute, is you sinned in the wilderness. You rebelled. Very striking that Moses lumps the generations together. He's very clear that it's a different generation later in Deuteronomy 1, for example. But he lumps them together Because he doesn't want you guys, you second generation, to think proudly of yourself. To think, we'll do this. Our parents didn't know. They failed. You can't get out. You can't escape that because he keeps saying you, you, you. But it also works at a positive level. So so that's a humbling level in a way. You are no better than your parents. Also works at a positive level. You heard God speak at Sinai. You might say, no, I didn't know I was born after then. Or you might say, no, I was actually asleep in my, ba- in my mother's you know, cradle thing then or something. But actually, again, it's, it's, it's creating a, an immediacy of God's word. So God's word then is still God's word now. Uh, and, and actually for generations after, in Joshua, there's another covenant renewal ceremony. The idea that God speaking, uh, even in Exodus, is still God speaking in Deuteronomy and we could actually extrapolate further into Joshua and beyond. And so God is still speaking to us. There's a sense in which if Moses were here perhaps, he could say, you heard God speak. So as we think of scripture, yes, it's true that God's word in a sense came down to Israel here and through Israel we, we read it uh, today. But there's also a right sense in saying God still speaks to us today. I don't mean hermeneutically we just forget about the ancient Israel and go simply to today but, but for the sense of immediacy God is still speaking to us today through this word although our interpretation of it must take us back uh, to the plains of Moab. Now um, uh, I've written just a handful of the, some of the key themes. I think I might leave that section out for now. I've touched on a couple of them. We'll come back to a couple of them. 